Chapter Thirty Two of the Hawk of Egypt by Joan Conquest. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Thirty Two. Millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth unseen, both when we wake and when we sleep. Spirits that live throughout, vital in every part. The light from the silver lamp shone down upon the water in the crystal basin, and upon the girl's red head as she crouched upon her knees against the leather curtain. Well might she crouch, well might she have put dust upon her head, as do the Easterns in their grief and shame. Well might her voice have wailed out across the desert in sorrow for the young life, broken by the careless fingers of her heedless youth. But she knelt without movement, with her face in her hands, the hands which had so lightly played pitch and toss with a man's heart and a man's life, and prayed desperately, silently, for forgiveness. Let it be granted her on account of her years, for youth is ever blind, and the young are ever selfish, giving never a thought to the years they must spend, when grey-haired and wise they will try to repair with their shaking old hands the tatters and rents they had made in their thoughtless, grasping youth. Strange it is that the old in years, in sorrow and knowledge, will sit darning the rents and patching the bad places with their trembling hands, as their wise old heads nod and their dear old mouths murmur a prayer. And yet be unable to teach the young how to keep the fabric of life whole, or safeguard it with the lavender of love and good will pressed between its folds. Until the drumming of the sands had sounded like distant thunder, and the shape of horse and its rider had become distinct to the desert trained eye of her desert lover, Damaris remained apprehensive and silent in the safe refuge of his arms, which crushed her to his heart. Then he lifted her and carried her swiftly to the little room of prayer. Lit by the silver lamp, and wresting a promise from her to keep her presence hidden, no matter what she might hear through the curtain, kissed her hands once and twice and yet again and left her, drawing the curtain close. Horrified, she heard the voice of Ben Kelham. Like a statue of fear, she stood, with her ear close to the curtain, for the half of an hour, the thirty short minutes in which she came to understand at last, clearly, definitely, that there was only one man in the world for her. And that he was the Englishman who sat with clenched hands under the lash of his friend's words, and her hand trembled so that the curtain shook as though blown by the night wind, as she held it back just wide enough to look through without being seen, and her eyes were soft with gratitude when she understood the greatness of the sacrifice of the man of the East had laid upon the altar of his honor and his friendship and his love. But her youth had gone from her forever, and her heart had been stamped with the seal of an everlasting regret. Her eyes had been filled with a great questioning, which was never to be answered on this earth, when her scream had been drowned in the crash of the report as the man she loved had fired and killed his friend. Had Hugh Carden Ali really feared for the safety of his friend and flung himself between him and the wounded beast, or understanding that in that way only could peace be obtained for all three, had he deliberately sought death? Allah, who is God of all, alone knows the answer. So let us leave it with Him. And then, being untried and very young, she slipped to her knees and fell unconscious, with her face upon her outstretched arms. And there she lay, whilst the silence of the coming dawn fell upon the earth, and wrapped itself in a soft winding sheet about him who lay asleep on his couch of death, at the foot of which stood his friend, looking down upon the peaceful face. Only a few moments had slipped into eternity when Damaris shivered and bewildered, not knowing if an hour or a second had passed whilst she had laid senseless, rose to her knees. There was no sound. 
She sat back and pushed the hair from her forehead, then rose and tiptoed to the curtain. She put out her hand and drew back, then, urged by a desire which clamoured for definite knowledge, parted the curtain and looked in. She looked for just one second, then staggered back and back as far as the crystal basin filled with the clear water which was used in prayer, and she stood with her arms outstretched, and fingers spread between her eyes, and the picture she herself had painted in the thoughtlessness of youth, and then swung round, with her back to the tent of death, and looked down into the water, and as though a veil had been lifted from before her eyes, looked back along the past, and forward into the future. As in a flash she saw the wreck she had made of her life by throwing away the substance of a good man's love, for the fantastic conviction that, as she was not like other girls, she must therefore go aventuring through the world's mazy highways and byways until she had found her own particular niche. She saw the picture of herself proclaiming it to her life by throwing away the substance of a good man's godmother's letter of invitation to Egypt. She saw the girl's lips moving. What was she saying? I want to find my own nail and hang for one hour by myself, if it's on a barn door or the wall of a mosque, as long as I am by myself. Then the picture faded, to give place to another in which she saw herself sitting in the moonlight beside Ben Kellum, the honest, slow, lovable man standing at that very moment a grim picture of despair, divided only by a curtain from her, through whom, indirectly, he had killed his friend. What was she saying to him in this dream picture? I don't know enough to marry. I want to know what love really is first. What was he saying in reply? You will learn your lesson all right, dear, and suffer a bit, dear, but you will come to me in the end. She suddenly knelt and plunged her hand down into the water, breaking the smooth surface into a thousand miniature waves which turned, as she stared, into the mocking smiles of her acquaintances and friends, and she knelt quite still until the surface was once more smooth, out of which, as she stared, looked the tragic face of the dead man's mother and the grief-stricken, shamed face of her beloved godmother. The gossip, the scandal, with her name linked as lover to that dead man, the chuckles, the sly lifting of eyebrow and pursing of lips when it should be known that the other man, the dead man's greatest friend, had come upon them unawares, alone in the tent at night. The story of this struggle, the shooting of the treacherous friend, for who would believe the story, told by the principals in the drama, of a wounded lion which had turned and disappeared into the night? There would be the inquest, the inquiry, the arrest for murder and the trial, in which she and all those she loved would be pilloried, through her fault in the eyes of the world. She stared down at the water, which seemed to hold her hands in the icy grip of death. Her hands! Look! What was that? What had happened to them? They were spotted with red. She tore at her handkerchief and rubbed them, under the water, rubbed hard, rubbed frantically, but the red spots were there on her hands, in her handkerchief, on the water, the red she had seen when she had looked. She flung the handkerchief from her and rose to her feet, shaking convulsively from head to foot. Poor child, half-crazed from horror, light-headed from fatigue and want of food, she had mistaken the reflection of the jewelled hawk she wore at her breast, thrown by the lamp upon the water, for the stain she had seen, and which had looked like a crimson rose above the heart of Hugh Cardin Ali, as he lay asleep, with his feet turned towards Mecca. God, she prayed, you who alone can save me, and every one from shame, you who can hide me from Ben, show me a way out, show me a way out. And as she repeated the words, the answer came. Of course, she whispered, right out in the desert, out on the sands, alone with my shame, where, when this has been forgotten, 
Perhaps all that will be left of me will be found by some wandering Bedouin, who will bury me deep in the sand. She was genuinely remorseful and horrified at what she had done, but also was she, as are so many of us who do not really feel deeply, pleasurably thrilled at the thought of the dramatic picture in which she should be the centre figure. If only men knew it, that is why so many women create such terrific scenes over nothing at all. It gives them a chance of donning their most effective gown and pulling their hair, if their own, down about their shoulders. Not even then did she grasp the full meaning of love. She parted the curtain at the back of the room of prayer, and looked out across the desert, and behold, standing upon the tips of slender feet, wrapped about in binding cloths of grey and white, there stood a figure. And the wind of dawn, upon whose wings are wafted the liberal souls into the safe-keeping of Allah, who is God, lifted for one instant the veil before her face. Just for a moment she looked upon the eyes alight with no earthly happiness, and the tender mouth smiling in farewell. And then the wind lifted the soft grey cloth of grey and white, and bounded across the hawk-like face. Half-turned, the figure stood with beckoning hand outstretched, and to the girl was granted the vision of the legions at dawn. There was no sound in all the limitless desert, yet the air was filled as with the tramp of feet, the thunder of horses, the rumble of wheels. They came from nowhere, those countless legions, from out of the shadows of the spent night. They walked in phalanxes, the uncountable spirits of dead kingdoms, with eyes uplifted to the dawn, spears raised, mouths open, with their shouts of welcome to the break of day. They rode their horses, thundering down the path of time. They drove their four-horse chariots straight towards the cup of gold, which rested upon the rim of the world. They came from nowhere, those countless legions, from out the shadows of the spent night. They journey over the ordained path which they have trod since the beginning of time, which has no beginning, and which they will tread unto the end of all time, which shall have no end. And laughing or sobbing, hoping, despairing, we shall fall as in our line, passes and go marching along with them, marching along until we come to the place where the shadow of the god is like a ram set with lapis lazuli, adorned with gold and with precious stones. Wait for me. The whisper was just a part of the shadows, as the girl turned her face to the east. Wrapped in her satin cloak, she walked wearily on and on. Her eyes were wide open, staring in a terrible fatigue. She saw nothing, her heelless slippers were torn to shreds, her feet were bleeding, she felt nothing. Not once did she look up, or back, or round. Had she done so, she might have noticed that her footprints in the sand were describing a circle, as our footprints do when we are lost in the bush or the desert. The shadows had gone, and the sand stretched a carpet of rosy and grey and gold before her, the sky a canopy of blue and grey and purple above. Like a lighthouse of hope, day was flashing his golden beams across the sky, a message to the weary who have toiled through the night. And then, with one great leap, he sprang clear of the horizon, just as Damaris stopped. She looked back in the direction in which she thought she had come. There was no sign of the tents. There could not be. They were not out of sight, but merely wrapped in the mist which sometimes rises as a fog in the desert at dawn. Let me die soon! Let me die soon! A great sob shook her as she prayed the prayer of the week. How much easier it is to stand at the window, with the police battering at the door, and, stimulated by its morbid interest, blow out our brains before the gaping crowd, which will, by the way, take exactly the same morbid interest in the shooting of a horse in the street, than to retire into the silence of the prison-cell or seclusion of the tideless backwater, 
and there work out our salvation amongst those who do not know if our name is Smith or Jones or Brown, and much less care. In the intensity of her prayers she clasped her hands upon the jewelled symbol upon her breast and looked up. From out of the west, cleaving the air like a thrown spear, flying straight towards the sun in greeting, there came a hawk. Up, up it sped, as though to pierce the very heavens, then hovered, wheeled, and swooped downwards above the girl. She flung out her arms as its symbol struck through her clouded senses, and unconsciously called the luring call she had heard but once, when she had first seen the man who lay asleep in the tent, in the market-place of the Arabian quarter in Cairo. Sweet and clear her voice rose through the morning air, rising until the bird caught the sound, and just as she swayed and fell, swooped. Down it came, straighter than a shaft of rain, swept across her like the wind, rose and sailed away. There was no call to bring it back now. The falconer who had thrown it, as was the custom at sunrise, was upon his knees with his forehead upon the ground, in sign of great grief, taking no notice of his master's favorite shaheen, which he had petted and trained. It flew towards the rising sun, it flew away, it was never seen again. Perhaps, after all, had it heard its master's call? End of chapter 32 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.